Welcome to the Ether. Today is Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. Today on the Ether, DeFi 101, Episode 6, Transaction Speed with Say Network. Hosted by Cosmos Joe. Let's take a listen. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's going well, sir. How are you doing today? Can't complain. Who's, who's going to be up here today? Uh, so... From my side, this is Jay, um, co-founder for Say, and there's also going to be the Say Labs or the Say Network account joining as well. Got it. Okay. I just wanted to make make sure I give the mic to the right people. Um, For anyone that's in the audience, uh, there'll definitely be time for you to come up and ask questions at the end. We usually breeze through the topic and get to know a little bit about the um the project in you know 20 30 minutes and then by all means please be ready to request the mic and uh and get up here we'll start in like a minute this one should be a good one there is another pretty big space going on right now but i'm going to go through my my intro i started a couple minutes late and timmy knows that i'm i'm right after him so um he'll probably be ending soon anyway so welcome everybody, DeFi 101, it's episode number six out of 40, and the goal is to get through 40 of these for 2023. If you're listening to this on the replay, this is Cosmos Joe, today is March 15th, and we have a topic for each space. Today we'll be talking about transaction speed with Say, I'll be hosting, and in the time that we've got, I'll make sure we get to learn as much as we can about the topic about say and of course like i said before we'll definitely allocate some time at the end for questions so please get your questions ready if you don't want to come up and take the mic you could definitely put your question on the thread down below bottom right bottom right of the space and uh, this is all about educating ourselves in the bear market i love doing this i love learning about DeFi. Uh, DeFi is how I got into this ecosystem in the first place. I'm really happy to have so many guests so far and a bunch lined up as well. So the next one is actually going to be about EVMs. This one is about transaction speeds. And I hope everyone listening gets as much out of this as I do. I'll be taking notes. So sometimes you'll hear me. I'll I'll zone out for a couple minutes while the, uh, the guest professor has the mic. I'm usually taking notes at the end. I'll try to summarize as best I can to make sure that, you know, we get the main points taken away from this. And uh, yeah, we'll start, uh, we'll start in a couple seconds. It looks like people are moseying on in from the other space that's going on. It, I usually listen to Timmy's spaces, but I wasn't able to get there. Got Bazooka in, in the audience. For those of you guys who don't know, Bazooka was in the first space that I ever conducted. And he, he, he got the microphone and chimed in while he was uh, 
smashed at a happy hour. So I appreciated that in my first spaces that I ever hosted. <laughs> so, um, Jay, uh, and Jay, I'm sorry, who'd you say is on the official account? I missed that part. Yeah. So the official account has Brian from our growth team on, um, I think he's going to be mostly silent, um, for the interview, unless we have any growth questions coming in. Oh, okay. No problem. Um, so I want to just get started with like some really basic stuff. And then a few minutes later, we'll get into say specifically. And I really, I have a couple, like a couple transaction speed concepts that are used a lot, not always clearly defined, or if they are clearly defined, a typical user like me, who's not a dev, I'm not, I'm not uh, really tech knowledgeable in terms of web three tech at all. Right. But I hear block size thrown around throughput thrown around transactions per second thrown around and then also just the very very general term that's almost like a meme now is scaling i was wondering if you could you know pick one of those and we could start from there just kind of get like a working definition before we go ahead and talk about say because i know you kind of want to change the idea of transaction speed once we get into say specifically yeah, of course. So thanks for having me on, man. Um, for those of you that don't really know about me, would it be helpful for me to go over a background of myself as well? Oh, yeah, you could do a real quick background if you want. Perfect. Cool. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, for those of you that don't, uh, that haven't met me before, don't know about me, uh, my name is Jay. I'm a co-founder of Stay Labs. So Stay Labs is the development entity in the U.S. that creates open source software for the Stay Network. Um, about me and my background, so... Grew up in the Bay, studied computer science. And then afterwards, I originally got into crypto back in 2017. My roommate at the time was going through Binance Launchpad. He was starting a crypto company. Um, so we worked on a couple of different projects together. Um, and then afterwards, I ended up joining Robinhood. So I spent almost four years over there. I saw the company 10x. And I was an engineering lead when the entire GameStop saga happened two years ago. Um, so for those of you that might not remember super closely, there was the entire meme stock saga, meme stock um, kind of uh, the entire series happening around that with GameStop, AMC, and a bunch of other stocks where the price of the stocks was rising because retail was um, essentially just pumping these stocks to the moon, right? And then hedge funds were trying to short these. There was a short squeeze happening where um, hedge funds were losing a bunch of money. Retail was super excited about that. And then just out of the blue, Robinhood completely turned off buys, um, specifically for, I think, 12 to 14 different meme stocks. And naturally, the entire country was just infuriated about that, right? This was kind of like the true Robin Hood moment where everyone was actually getting to um, buy, where everyone was getting to buy these stocks. And it was kind of like a fuck you to um, all of these institutional players. And then that just kind of got turned off by Robin Hood. So understandably, the entire world was pretty un unhappy about that. And I mean, in retrospect, Robin Hood didn't do anything malicious, but it was just very not well handled by Robin Hood. Just complete lack of transparency, completely opaque. Um, as, an, as an insider, it's like super demoralizing, right? Like I put my reputation on the line to join a company like Robinhood. And it's just like all of my friends are reaching out to me, asking me what's happening. I couldn't tell them anything. My team was asking questions, couldn't tell them anything. And that entire experience made me much more of a decentralization maxi. Um, anything that happens in a decentralized manner is inherently trustless, transparent, and would have avoided a lot of the issues that Robinhood experienced. So that's why two years ago, my co-founder and I, we started looking into building a decentralized exchange. That then led us down the path of looking where we could build an exchange, where we could scale an exchange. And that's when we actually realized that the infrastructure itself is lacking. 
Now, I guess this initial question that you'd asked me was around defining one of the, one of the terms. Um, we can look at the term scaling. Yep, yep. So scaling generally refers to um, taking something and ha- basically making it bigger in some capacity. Um, in the context of exchanges, which is what we really care about, right? Like the core thesis that we have internally is that exchanges are the most important application in crypto. Um, and I mean, I can go a little bit more into that if helpful as well. But the core problem that we solve at Zay is the exchange scaling problem. We don't think that exchanges can become bigger, service more customers, and be as performant um, on-chain right now as they would be if they were to build something off-chain. So the core thing that we think about it today is how can we take exchanges in a decentralized context and help them get a user experience and performance that is similar to building a centralized exchange where it's just one server that is maintained by one entity. Um, and how can we make that gap uh, smaller? And ideally, it'll be the exact same experience between using a decentralized exchange versus using a centralized exchange like Binance. Wait, can you just, for, for, let me interrupt you for a sec. So you're saying right now, um, centralized exchanges are able to solve the scaling problem better than on-chain. That, is that what you said or did I, did I get it backwards? That's, so, yeah, I mean, so from a pure scaling standpoint, which is being able to build an exchange that's able to service more users, that's substantially easier to do in any kind of centralized manner than it is to do in a decentralized context. If you're doing something in a decentralized context, okay. you need to have consensus between the different nodes. Um, assuming you're using something like a layer one blockchain where you have to like get consensus between different parties um, compared to like a centralized roll-up sequencer. Um, in a decentralized context, it's just there's substantial additional overhead, which results in a couple of issues. Um, the first issue is latency, and the second issue is throughput. So latency is the time that it takes, specifically in the context of a blockchain, we can use the term time to finality. So it's the time for a block to get created and then finalized by the network. Um, and then the second term that I use over there, throughput, is the amount of uh, just orders in the case of an exchange or the amount of transactions um, that are able to get processed for any unit of time. So generally, you want to have a very low latency because that allows um, people to be placing trades in much faster context. And especially if you're doing something on-chain, right? Like, let's say you're trading Ether on-chain. If you go to Binance, there's like people trading Ether off-chain as well. So there's going to be like these price movements that are happening off chain and the longer your latency is like the longer your time to finality is the more the price is going to be changing in the off chain world which then results in people that are holding any position on chain having to take on more risk so market makers and people that are trading on chain they inherently want lower time to finality because that allows them to take on less risk and when you're taking on less risk as a market maker that results and manifests itself by having uh, market makers that are able to then quote tighter spreads which results in more liquid markets and better experiences for users. Um, the second point around throughput, you generally want to have uh, any ecosystem be able to process more transactions per second or more orders per second, because that results in a better experience and more people are actually able to use that ecosystem. Um, so that's one of the bigger open-ended questions right now, just in crypto in general, like how can you actually have people, uh, how can you build an ecosystem that is able to scale and handle greater amounts of throughput? Okay. And for, for a DEX, are all orders more or less equal in terms of um, being able to process them, process them at a certain speed? Yeah. I mean, so from state standpoint, we treat every single order the exact same way. Um, other types of exchange, I mean, it's, it's a very open-ended design space. Other types of exchanges might decide to treat certain orders at a higher class citizen than others. Maybe they might treat market maker orders to be more important than retail orders or vice versa. They might treat certain asset classes to be more important than other asset classes. 
the way that we've approached it from a standpoint is we're just building the layer one infrastructure. We're not really making any determinations about who the more important user is, about what types of assets are more important. We're going to let exchanges get built on top of say, um, and they're going to be able to make those determinations for themselves around what kind of things, what kind of better experiences they would want to provide for users. All right. And I noticed usually when, uh, when, when we see block size discussed, it's actually measured in time, right? It, I think that's hard to understand. What, b- block size, you know, six second block or whatever, 10 second block. Mm-hmm. Is there an easier way to u- understand that? Or maybe some context you could throw around it that will make it yeah. a, a little bit more friendly for someone like me? Yeah. So I, I think one thing that I would note is that block size is generally measured in um, bytes or megabytes. Um, and then there's this concept of block time. So I think um, block time ties into the latency point a lot more closely. And I guess that's what your question was related to. So I'll go into that. So the general concept of a block of block time is how long does it take for a block to get added to the network? And then I think there's two terms over here that matter. The first is the time to add a new block. And the second is the time to actually finalize that block, right? So if you have a chain like, if you have a chain that is built with Tendermint or any other um, consensus algorithm that has single slot finality, both of these end up being the same thing. So if you're using any Cosmos SDK-based chain that is using Tendermint, um, what you're going to notice is that in order for a block to get added to the network, there needs to be two-thirds consensus by voting power between all the different validator nodes. And once that two-thirds consensus is achieved, then that block gets added to the network. And then that's part of the canonical chain. There's no concept of a reorg happening accidentally. There won't be a, a fork in the chain happening um, accidentally. Like That'll just be the canonical state of the blockchain, and that block will be finalized. And if you're a market maker, right? Let's say that you want to buy one Ether on-chain and then you want to hedge your position off-chain by opening a short. Um, you can do that as soon as, there is, as soon as that block has been added to the chain because you know for certain that that block has been added. Now, if you're on some other ecosystem that has multi-slot finality, this becomes a much more kind of complicated process because if you have multi-slot finality, what typically is happening is a block gets added by some kind of block producer and there might be multiple people who could accidentally become the, or who could become the block producer. It might not even be accidentally. Um, and then they will be creating their own chains. And then only after a certain number of blocks have been added to a certain chain, if a certain number of validators have voted for a certain chain, um, then that block, uh, then that chain will become the canonical chain and that block will be considered finalized. So you might end up having a block that gets added once every 400 milliseconds, but it's not finalized for let's say 15 seconds. So there ends up being a lot of blocks that get added to that chain before it's actually, before one of the initial blocks is considered finalized. So this leads to a really clunky market maker experience because one of two things that need to happen, either market makers will be hedging their positions by um, opening, they'll basically be looking at when a block is added to the network and that's when they will open their um, position on the off-chain entity. So let's say that it's a block that gets added to the uh, chain, but it's not finalized yet. So at time zero, they'll have that block get added to the chain. That's when they hedge their position. And then afterwards, it'll take another 15 seconds roughly for that block to get finalized. During that time, if there's a fork or reorg that happens, and that block gets dropped, and that transaction is not actually included anymore, then what ends up happening is they're just holding that off-chain position, which results in them essentially losing money and taking on uh, more than they would like to, which results in users having um, worse prices through wider spreads. So that's approach number one that they could take. Approach number two is they'll just be waiting until the block is finalized before they would hedge their position. And then this just results in them having to wait 15 seconds. And the longer you have to wait, the more off-chain prices change. Um, and that results in, once again, wider spreads and a worse user experience. So 
that, that's the general concept of a block time. The lower the block time is, the better the user experience ends up being. And the more kind of um, certainty you have that a block has actually been um, included in a network if you're using a single slot finality consensus algorithm versus multi-slot finality. All right. I mean, that was a lot, but I think that, that for me, that definitely helps me do a better job of wrapping my head around it, right? Because, you know, when you, usually if I'm looking at trying to compare chains, they'll use these different terms and they seemingly use them in different, different contexts. So it is really hard to compare one chain to another, especially if you're reading an article or documents written by, you know, two different people, but that, yeah. I think that really helps. So I, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment. Like a lot of times chains purposely make things a little bit more misleading than they need to be. Um, and especially for things like throughput comparisons, there's like very different metrics that chains end up using. There's like no, definition that is like the de facto definition for something like this. So I, I think you really need to go into the weeds of how each chain represents things and then, um, yeah, better try to understand the approach that they're taking. All right. No, but I think that w- that's a good, th- the, the way you framed it, I think that was a good explanation, at least, uh, at least for me, hopefully people in the audience agree, but, uh, if anyone, and again, if you guys have questions in the audience, you know, in a little bit, for, you know, you're going to be able to come up and ask them, or you could put them on the thread down below. Uh, and I am going to draw uh, random, random numbers to uh, give people some some giveaways in the audience that I have. So just make sure you're listening. So it makes my job easier in getting the the prize to you. <laughs> but let's let's talk about say specifically. You kind of already stated what problem, what the ultimate goal is of say, but maybe you could um, kind of elaborate that on a little bit more, or even like kind of repeated for people that just came in within the last minute or two. Of course, yeah. So internally at Say Labs, we have one core thesis, just one. Exchanges are the most important application in crypto. That's it, right? And this is true both off-chain and on-chain. If you look off-chain, you have, let's say, Binance. Binance's core product is an exchange. And the main thing that people come in day, day in and day out to use on Binance is their exchange. And all the other services that they offer, like staking and lending, those all drive their demand from the exchange because people want to get tokens and then trade them. Um, Same thing on-chain. If you look at Ethereum, core products in Ethereum are uh, OpenSea and Uniswap. And all of the other applications on Ethereum, they're basically uh, built up around these exchanges. Um, So, for example, if you look at lending, um, on Aave, the main reason you would want to take out a loan is to then be able to take take whatever you borrow and then trade that, right? And this isn't just true for DeFi. This is also true for NFTs and games. The main reason that people honestly buy NFTs right now is to be able to speculate on them and to be able to trade them. Um, the main thing that people do with uh, gaming right now is they get in-game assets that are then traded on like Axie's decks or Stepin's decks. So exchanges are just universally important for everything that happens in crypto. And they're honestly the only thing right now that have true demand, right? Like most applications in crypto right now if you take away their token-based incentives, they have no semblance of product market fit. Exchanges, on the other hand, have true product market fit. Like even without token incentives, people are still using these exchanges. So the question then becomes, how do you help an exchange grow? How do you help it become bigger? Um, and that's what we spend all of our time at Say Labs thinking about. Uh, we spend all of our time thinking about the exchange scaling problem. And the core promise that we make to teams building on Say is that you can focus on your exchange mechanism design, you can focus on user acquisition. And I mean, honestly, user acquisition is probably the most important part in this entire puzzle. Um, And we'll focus on just building scalable infrastructure 
So you don't really need to be thinking about the infrastructure that you're building on. Um, this is something that has resonated with a lot of teams at this point. Um, we have over 120 different projects that are building on, say, ahead of our mainnet launch. Um, and our mainnet is coming in later Q2 of this year. So definitely looking forward to that. I guess the other thing that would be helpful to go over is more of like what the actual product is. So we say that our mission internally is to build the best infrastructure for exchanges. Um, the question then becomes like, what is that infrastructure? So the way that we thought about that is we went and talked to a bunch of different exchanges and we asked them, what kind of uh, characteristics would you like to see in the infrastructure that you build on? And we just basically solicited, solicited their feedback. Um, there are a couple of different verticals that became very clear as being important to them. The first is performance, specifically around time to finality and throughput. Um, and secondly, was user experience. So we took that feedback and that's how we decided what we want to be building. So from the time to finality standpoint, um, we initially got started building with the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint core. And then we thought to ourselves, okay, how do we make this faster? So we chatted with Zucky, who's one of our advisors. We chatted with Marco, who's the product lead for the Cosmos SDK. And we basically asked him, how, how can we make these, um, this architecture faster? So what we ended up doing is we took Tendermint, we replaced the way that block propagation works, uh, which we called intelligent block propagation. Uh, we changed the way that block processing works, which we called optimistic block processing. Um, and I can go more into both of these things as helpful as well. But through these changes that we made, also by tuning the timeouts around Tendermint, changing the validator set number, we're able to bring down the time to finality of the public testnet that we launched two days ago to 500 milliseconds. This is the fastest that any chain has ever been. And these are with conditions that mimic mainnet, right? So when we launch on mainnet, we'll be the fastest that any chain has ever been. And honestly, by a magnitude compared to most other ecosystems. Uh, most of the ecosystems have more than five second time to finality. So that was the first major improvement that we make that substantially helps with the market maker experience. The second thing that we did is throughput. We decided to think to ourselves, like, how can we improve, increase throughput? And one of the most common ways that we do this in Web2 is through parallelization. And there's examples of chains like Solana, for example, Solana, Aptos, we that are approaching, um, that are using parallelization as well in their approach to scaling. And we're currently the only Cosmos-based chain to be making use of any form of parallelization. So we basically took the Cosmos SDK, which is single-threaded, and we added in parallelization. And I mean, that honestly was not an easy feat. Um, but we, were, we spent a good chunk of time over the past six months to add in parallelization. And the current version of, um, say, that we have running in the public testnet does support parallelization. And through that, it's helped us get up to 20,000 orders per second that we can process. So this is a magnitude more than what you'd be able to process in most other ecosystems as well. Um, in terms of the user experience standpoint, the main thing that we did is we added in a native order matching engine into the chain itself. So you can essentially think of, say, broadly from a mental model perspective as a general purpose chain with a primitive added in for the order matching engine. So what this allows you to do is completely prevent front running um, within the scope of a block for anything related to the order book. And the way that that works is that say we'll take every single order associated with every single market and then aggregate those together at the end of the block when block processing is happening. And what it then does is it will um, aggregate all these orders together and then have them get filled at the exact same price. So what that means is every single market order within a block will get the exact same price. Now, this results in a couple of things. The first is price fairness, right? Every single person in the block will get the same price, which is better from a user experience standpoint. The second thing that it results in is front-running prevention because you can't change the ordering of transactions within a block so that you can 
uh, modify, like you can add in your own transactions beforehand and then sell it to someone at like a higher price, for example, um, because everyone gets filled at the exact same price. So those are a couple of the things that we've done. Um, and yeah, I mean, overall, I would say that things are in a good spot now. We've been grinding over the past, like around uh, the past year to get all of this up and running. Um, and the public testnet that launched a couple of days ago has been very stable so far. So yeah, um, pretty excited about the progress so far. So you guys are your own chain, right? We know that there's, you know, ICS chains, there's DAP chains. You, you consider yourself a sector specific chain, right? That is correct. So can you, can you just, ex- can you just explain that? Of course. Yeah. So I'll go into the sector specific part um, after going into like the sovereign chain part. So uh, yes, cur- currently say is a completely sovereign chain. We're not making use of any kind of shared security, like replicated security. Um, the main reason for that is we wanted complete customizability over the consensus layer of say. So we wanted to change the validator set number. We wanted to change the consensus implementation. And that, that's one of the things that has helped us get down to the 500 millisecond time to finality, which realistically we, we would not have been able to do with replicated security. With that being said, I do think that the um, idea of layered security, which is interchain security v2, is very interesting to us. Because we fundamentally believe that um, one of the hardest parts of getting a new chain up and running is the security aspect of it, right? That, that's why replicated security is a very, um, I think, a very strong idea. Because getting your own network bootstrapped is a really difficult thing to do. And I mean, we're definitely noticing that right now ourselves as well. Like getting the economic security to secure chain at mainnet, like that's tough. And the lower the economic security is, the more likely that network is, or the easier it is to attack that network. Um, so with layered security and this idea of additive security in general, um, you can rent security from some other chain or some other ecosystem. And in exchange for that, you'll be giving some percentage of your staking rewards or some kind of reward to that ecosystem in exchange for additional economic security. Um, so one example of that would be um, with Eigenlayer on Ethereum, people can choose to take their Ethereum that is, take their Ether that have already been staked, and then they can restake them, which means they add additional sla- uh, slashing criteria to them. And then afterwards, if a validator on same misbehaves, then those Ether would get slashed. Um, if the validators don't misbehave, then whoever is giving, um, whoever is restaking will get additional um, economic security or we'll get additional yield from that. So we think that this idea of added security, specifically ICS v2 with layered security is doing a similar thing, um, is worth looking into. Um, this, the second point of what you were asking about uh, layered or um, the sector specific approach is that if you look at the distribution of layer ones out there right now, they basically fall under two buckets, right? On one hand, you have general purpose chains like Ethereum and Solana. On the other hand, you have application-specific chains like Osmosis, EYDX v4. Um, there's benefits to both sides of the spectrum, right? With app chains, I, I think a lot of folks in the audience are going to be intimately familiar. You're able to get really, really customized infrastructure for the specific type of use case that you're trying to solve. So if you want to build a type of application, you can customize every single part of the stack to give your application the best possible performance and the best possible user experience. Um, on the other hand of the spectrum, with general purpose chains, you don't get that customizability at all, right? The main thing that you get is social coordination. So every single project is, that is building on that ecosystem is on the same team. And they're all working together to help that ecosystem succeed. And that's why most of the popular ecosystems out there right now, they tend to be general purpose chains because there's a lot of social, there's a lot of benefits to this social coordination that is much harder to mimic with one team that is building one project that is not really having that same um, coordination. So the approach that we took is rather than going on either side of the stream, 
we went right in the middle. So, uh, which we've termed uh, sector specific, right? So what this means in practice is that we built this really customized infrastructure and we're not building any of the applications ourselves. What we're doing is we're adding, we're um, basically assisting teams to come and start building on the ecosystem. And we think that this approach is the, an approach that is definitely like a much more interesting design space because we're able to get the customizability of an app specific chain while also enabling the uh, social coordination that a general purpose ecosystem gets. And I guess one question that always comes up is like, well, why can't like an app chain just become a sector specific chain? And the biggest reasons for that is credible neutrality, right? Like if you're an exchange and you want to go and build on a DEX app chain, the question becomes like, won't you be competing against the DEX app chain itself? And yes, there's a very clear conflict of interest. Um, whereas if you're building on more of a sector specific ecosystem where the layer one itself is not building any applications, um, then it's, there's not really a conflict of interest anymore. So that's why I think we've had an easier time building a larger community than other um, chains that might be trying to take a similar approach. It's largely because of this um, credible neutrality piece. Got it. So again, I just want to make sure I've got I've got what you what you just said about sector specific. So you're saying you built this this kind of customized infrastructure, but inviting other teams to build what they want, well, whatever they want on that on that infrastructure. Is exactly. That right? Yes. Okay. And you did say you you made modifications to the validator set. Can you go into that? A little bit, unless I I might have missed it, but I yeah, just curious to see what you what you did. Oh yeah, I mean the biggest thing from that side is that Tendermint is capped in the number of, or like not not strongly capped, but like Tendermint doesn't scale very well with the number of validators that you have. So Cosmos Hub is 175 validators. Um, I, I don't believe there's any Cosmos chain that has a greater validator set size than that. Um, so we decided that if we're going to be capped in the number of validators that we have anyway, rather than using the Cosmos Hub validator set, which is larger, and having to use all of them. Um, we decided it made more sense to just start off with a smaller validator set, uh, which will allow us to have better performance. Um, and then afterwards, focus, secondly, on um, increasing the validator set size in the future. So because of that approach that we've taken, it has been easier for us to have lower block times, higher throughput, just because there's uh, less coordination overhead between the number of validators. Well, what, what is the number? Uh, we haven't decided what will be there on mainnet, but on this public testnet right now, there's 40. So somewhere in that rough range. Got it. All right. Um, as far as speed goes, or, you know, I know you guys are calling them orders per second. Is there a comparative, you know, a close comparison within the ecosystem at all, or even outside the ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in terms of orders per second, not really. So I, I guess there's two terms to look at over here. One is transactions per second. The other is orders per second. Um, in terms of the, like, if you look at other ecosystems, they typically talk about transactions per second. In the case of, say, we have this order batching logic that the chain supports, what that means is that a market maker is able to, let's, let's say that they want to update 100 separate markets on, say, so like a Bitcoin spot market, a uh, like Atom perps market. Um, they don't need to submit multiple transactions for that. They also don't need to create customized smart contracts to help with that. And all, all they need to do is submit one transaction that has the different messages for all of these uh, different markets in one. And then the chain is able to just... Uh, basically go through that and then aggregate all the different messages between all the different markets. And then they just need to make one VM call to actually execute those trades across those different markets. So through this order batching approach, we've been able to get more orders that can be processed each second. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of comparisons for orders per second, most ecosystems end up being like in the roughly in like 1,000 uh, transactions to like 
2000 transactions per second range. If you look at like Avalanche or Near or even Solana, for example, um, they roughly end up being in that, in that, in that range. Um, so in terms of orders, they end up being roughly a, a magnitude higher over there. Interesting. All right. Uh, yeah, because I know most people, they've been just hearing how fast Solana is all the time. And probably people assume that, all right, Solana must be one of the fastest, if not, if not the fastest chain, and then a bunch of other chains, while still a lot of them are fast, are, are probably not close to Solana. And that's, you know, that that's that's pretty much the the reputation that that Solana has, I would say, mm-hmm. amongst the, the the normal users. Would you agree with that so far? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, the one point that I would think is interesting to maybe talk about over there is that Solana has a really fast block time, um, but that does not translate into a really fast time to finality. Because for a block to be added on Solana, the block producer just needs to produce it, but that does not mean that there's consensus between all the different nodes in the network. Um, for that block to actually be finalized, it, I, I mean, it really depends on the different, um, like, different approaches that you use to measure that, but I, I believe the number will be at least three to five seconds, depending on who you talk to. And, other people will say like even north of 15 seconds for it to be finalized. Right. And, and back to what I was saying before, you'll never find a Solana document that talks about that, right? You, they're going to push out like whatever, you know, puts them in the best light as far as speed. Cause that's their, their competitive edge, at least so far is what it, what it seems like. So yeah. someone like me, it's really hard. It's really hard to, to figure out, you know, if I wanted to go out and seek the, the quote unquote fastest chain. It's I'm going to get like a handful with conflicting information. I'll say, okay, well, it's this group of, of chains. And I'm not saying it matters, which is the fastest chain, but just that's usually what's talked about when, uh, you know, chain like Solana, you know, you're reading something about their, about their chain. Yeah. I mean, I will say their marketing materials have not been the most straightforward. Um, with that being said, I do think their developer docs are a lot better about this. Like if you look at their developer docs, I think that they explain like which parts of their consensus approach are, um, more potentially difficult for developers. Like they talk about how 5% of the blocks they have end up getting reorged. So you can't really look at the confirmation time. It's better to look at the time um, that a block is actually finalized. So I, I think that from a marketing standpoint, it's a little misleading, but I think their developer docs are much more, um, I think, pure and kind of honest with what's happening. Uh, fair enough. I know. And the reason why I keep bringing up Solana is because like about six months ago, I tried to like seek out either a dev or a validator or anybody who would explain to me exactly what you're explaining now about just the speed. And I just basically wanted to ask them what makes Solana so fast and what are the different factors that, that get put together to determine the speed and nobody would take me seriously. And even one person told me this is in the Solana, I think it's like a Solana developers discord or Solana tech discord, one of those. And someone actually told me, you know, before you ask that question, you should run a node for three to six months. So at least you understand how the network works. Yeah. And no, I'm dead serious. That's what they told me. I was like, you know what? Screw this. Let me email some validators. And no one got back to me. So I was like, damn, this is like really hard to get this information. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think their approach to consensus in general is a little bit harder to understand, especially because there's so many moving parts with like proof of history and tower BFT. Um, so definitely a harder consensus approach to, to understand the details around. Got it. All right. Well, we'll, we'll go back to say, cause this is a say space. So um, I guess, you know, all that information about the, um, you know, the finality, the latency, the, the um, block time throughput that definitely helps someone like me understand a little bit more, at least, 
you know, what goes into it. And it's definitely not a straightforward question then to just ask how fast is the chain necessarily, but there have to be some trade-offs for, for what you guys have done, what you know, you've customized, um, you know, you've, you've done some customizations. What are the trade-offs? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, I mean, anything that you like, yeah, any blockchain that you build is going to have trade-offs depending on what type of things you want to focus on. Um, in our case, we decided to initially start building with Cosmos SDK Tendermint Core. Um, it's, and I, I think the biggest trade-off that we did was using Tendermint because Tendermint does not scale with the num like scales N squared with the number of validators. So it's harder to have a larger validator set, let's say in the thousands or even the tens of thousands um, with Tendermint. So with that being said, I think the biggest trade-off that we made compared to an ecosystem like Ethereum um, is decentralization, right? We are starting off with a validator set that is 40 validators. This allows us to have um, a lot of the benefit that I talked about around performance would be very difficult to replicate if you had like 10,000 or 50,000 validators. So I would say that that's the um, kind of biggest trade-off that we've made around this. Um, with that being said, that is going to be one of the things we focus on after mainnet launch. Like how can we tweak the consensus configurations potentially um, to give to like help us get a larger, larger number of validators. Um, one thing that we, I mean, one thing that we could definitely do is uh, use an approach similar to what Ethereum is doing with their beacon chain, where you have different validator committees and then you have um, portion, and then you have like each of those committees essentially um, vote. And then afterwards you combine the votes of these different committees. Um, another approach could be subsampling where you could have a lot of validators, but then you only need to have a smaller number of the validators vote during each voting cycle. And if you have a large enough validator set size, then the statistics around it would more or less make it negligible in terms of the probability that if you have a majority of nodes being honest, um, that you would get a set of nodes that are like um, bad nodes who end up actually voting. So that's one of the things we're going to be exploring in the future. But yeah, to your, to your question, the biggest trade-off is around decentralization. Okay. All right. And I did, for people in the audience, I did draw a random number and it was um, high. Uh, it says Zach, high Hrothgar. That's your Twitter handle. I just DM'd you to send me the information so I could send you uh, the, the, um, the little present there. And uh, I'll draw one more in the next couple of minutes for people that are upset that they didn't win. Cause that always happens. People DM me, they say, Oh, oh I didn't win. I'm like, well, there was like 60 people or 50 people and I only pulled two. So hopefully if you're upset, you'll stick around and give you another chance. And also I only have really one or two more questions. Um, and then if, again, if anyone wants to come up, ask questions, I know there were a couple in the, uh, in the thread that I was able to ask or that, or that Jay hit on anyway, which is great. I guess for your, you know, you're, you're in Cosmos and I know in the bear market, there are less users, there's less transaction volume and all that. We start to see that some of the app chains are competing with each other. Some of even the, the, you know, the ecosystems, you know, let's say Juno versus another chain that's not an app chain, there, there's competition for users, right? So I was wondering who you consider to be an immediate competitor or maybe a competitor down the road, at least out of the gate for users. Yeah, so I think the easiest way to think about competition is by looking at which projects, teams, like, I mean, from a lab side, we definitely chat with a lot of teams. Some of those teams decide to build on say. Um, at this point, over 120 of those teams have started to build on say. Other teams choose to go to um, other ecosystems and build instead. Um, so I think from that standpoint, the ecosystems that we've lost the most users to end up all being um, Ethereum L2s. 
that that seems to be the place where we are losing the most developers to. Um, and I think the second place would be to specifically Aptos. Um, so in terms of competition, I think that, I mean, first of all, the space overall is extremely small. So even thinking of that as competition, I don't really think is the fair way to think about it. Like there's a lot of uh, ways that we can collaborate with basically every other um, infrastructure provider out there right now. And that would still um, result in overall everyone ending up um, better off. Um, but in terms of like who are losing developers, so it ends up being like Optimism um, and Arbitrum uh, at the forefront. But you said you said there's 120 different teams building on Say right now? That's correct. Yeah, there's over 120 teams that have committed already. Um, out of those, I think on Twitter, we've had over 60 publicly announced. So yeah, there's been a lot of developer activity um, yeah, ahead of the mainnet launch. Got it. Okay. Um, I guess last question is about the front running. You did mention that. I was wondering if you could just kind of clarify a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Because now, you know, we have, we have skip protocol, you know, we got a lot of information a couple of weeks ago from them about MEV. Mm-hmm. How, how is that going to work on a say? Yeah. So, I mean, high level, the way that we think about MEV is we want to stop bad MEV and we want to redistribute good, good MEV. So I think there's a lot of alignment between us and what Skip is working on. Um, in terms of what I consider to be bad versus uh, like neutral MEV, um, bad MEV would be front running. Neutral MEV would be something like liquidations or ARBs or NFT mints, right? So bad MEV actively exploits someone. Neutral MEV is just an opportunity for someone to make money. Whoever's the first one to win that opportunity is able to profit off of that. So around front running specifically, for audience members that aren't super familiar with it, um, one example of front running would be a user places a trade. Let's say I want to buy Ether for $1,500. So I say that I'll buy it for $1,500 with 1% slippage, which means I'm willing to pay up to $1,500 and $1,515 to buy it. Um, so then someone, let's say uh, you're a block producer, you see that, you see my transaction coming in. And what you decide to do is you place an order to buy um, Ether for $1,500, and then you place a sell order to sell it for $1,515. And then the third transaction over there is my transaction to buy it for 15, for up to 1515. So if you're able to atomically execute all these together, which you would be able to, you then end up making a $15 profit, a 1% profit, which is equal to the slippage um, with absolutely no risk. And this is at the expense of me, the user, just getting a worse price. And this is extremely predatory. Um, it's illegal in the United States to do that in traditional financial markets. And I mean, from a technical standpoint, it is currently feasible to do that. Um, on-chain in many other ecosystems. Uh, the approach that we're taking is we just want to stop this type of bad MEV whenever we can. So the approach we're using for that is frequent batch auctions. Um, and the logic over there is we aggregate every single order together per market, and then we execute all of these orders at the exact same uniform clearing price. So one example of that would be, let's say that there's an order book for a Bitcoin spot market um, and people are trying to sell Bitcoin for, there's one order for $1,500, there's another order for $1,510. And then two market buys come in. If you have sequential processing, then the first one would get filled at $1,500, second one would get filled at $1,510. Um, with frequent batch auctions, they would both get filled at the average price, which would be $1,505, so $1,505. Um, so through this approach, it ends up being much more fair for users because if your transaction is included in a block, then you'll get a more favorable price, uh, which ends up being the average price. And then whoever is placing the limit orders, they still end up getting the same price. So whoever was trying to sell it for fifteen hundred, they would get fifteen hundred. Whoever was trying to sell it for fifteen ten, they would get fifteen ten. No, thanks for that with the uh, with the real numbers as well. I did give a mic to Yemi if you want to ask your your question. 
Hello, I would like to ask about the security of, say, our securities for users. Yeah, so Say is built uh, with Cosmos SDK and Tendermint Core as the core base layers for what we got started with. So I, I would say that the security for Say is equivalent uh, to Cosmos and Tendermint security. Um, at this point, Cosmos and Tendermint have been extremely battle tested. Um, even when Terra collapsed, Terra collapsed from the algorithmic stablecoin side, that's fine. But like the core infrastructure layer was completely intact the entire time. So I would say that it's extremely secure. Um, from an economic security standpoint, um, say we'll have, uh, I mean, yeah, like from a practical standpoint, the say foundation will be making a lot of delegations early on. And then afterwards, we're going to be exploring additive security as a mechanism to get more um, economic security for the chain. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, man. I did give a mic to somebody else. I don't see them up here. Uh, oh, there they are. Uh, push. Push Praj, you could uh, you could ask your question. Hi, um, my name is Push Praj. I have a general query about um, shared liquidity. Um, so my understanding is that uh, any exchange that wants to build on CE can have their own, um, you know, protocol developed and um, settled. When the transaction is settled, it will finally happen um, on CE chain. Um, so my question is, is there a provision for um, shared liquidity at the chain level itself? So just to give you an example, like in Ethereum, you have different protocols um, like Uniswap, SushiSwap. And if they want to share the liquidity or if someone wants to provide liquidity, they have to go at the protocol level to do that. And unless there is a coordination between those protocols, um, they can't really share that liquidity. So since SEI is specializing only in this exchange component of it, is there a provision to add um, liquidity at the chain level? So mm -hmm. if I have to provide liquidity and yeah. all other protocols that are building on it can uh, uh, you know, share that or use that liquidity to um, operate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so after chatting with a good number of exchanges, one thing became abundantly clear to us, which is that liquidity mm -hmm. ends up being a moat for good exchanges, right? Like good exchanges, they have tons of liquidity. Newer exchanges, they don't have as much liquidity, so it's harder for them to compete. So good exchanges, by default, never want to share liquidity with anyone else. Like, that's what they've worked hard mm -hmm. to get. So because of that, the approach that we've taken is that if an exchange is building on, say, by default, they'll have a segregated order book, which means that they will not be needing to share liquidity with anyone else. Um, if they want to do something similar to Sierra Monslana, where you essentially build a shared liquidity layer and then other people can create either smart contracts or front ends on top of that, that would then route some yeah. percentage of the trading fee to whatever that shared liquidity layer is. That is possible to do. And there's projects building that. Um, but in terms of just by default, forcing people to share liquidity, um, just after doing the situation and like thinking about it from our side, we, we don't think that's the right approach to be supporting at a chain level. Got it. Thank you for that. Can, can you give a, can you give an example of where shared liquidity would be appropriate just out of curiosity? Yeah. So for a lot of exchanges that are getting up off the ground, um, they might not want to spend a lot of time thinking about market maker deals. They might want to focus a lot more on user acquisition. So in that case, they could just build on top of a shared liquidity layer. And let's say that shared liquidity layer is charging a certain percentage of fees, um, of trading fees, then they would just have essentially built a smart contract layer on top of that. They could charge additional fees. So like if the uh, shared liquidity layer is charging one bit in fees, they could charge another bit. So then that exchange would be routing user flow towards the base layer. 
Um, and both layers would be able to get their own, um, essentially their own trading fees. So the whoever is building on top of the shared liquidity layer would be drawing in users and kind of profiting off of that. Cool. No, thanks again. You know, it's 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 really good to have some of these things explained to the end user who's not, you know, not thinking about the infrastructure necessarily, definitely not thinking about what's going on under the hood. We just want to make our trades and we want to just play around on, on an application. So I think this is uh this is definitely helping me. Hopefully people out there uh agree. And I am gonna draw for that that random number. I just noticed there's like so many bots in here. I don't wanna accidentally give some money to a bot. Um uh we kind of went through all my questions. I was wondering if you think there's something that we missed that you wanted to wrap up with that um people would would should know about say maybe yeah. the launch date. Anything like that, token? Yeah, yeah. So the two questions that I get asked the most are when mainnet and when airdrop. So the first question, when mainnet, I think I already mentioned that. That'll be sometime Q2 of this year. So probably May, June timeframe. Um, second question is around the airdrop. There will be an airdrop for say. So we haven't released any details around that. So no alpha on this call, but there will be opportunities for people to get free say tokens. Um, there's also an incentivized testing period that is currently going on. So anyone that wants to um, essentially play around in the current testnet, try some of the projects that are building on, say, um, if you do so, you will be eligible to receive incentivized testnet awards. So that is a way for you to earn free tokens for just participating and being a part of the community. Um, if you want to learn more about, say, the Say Network um, handle, the Say Network Twitter is part of this discussion right now. You can just click over there and then you could uh, look at the link tree over there, um, join the Discord and get more engaged with the community as well. Um, besides that, yeah, I think that's pretty much it from my side. This was a lot of fun. Haven't had a conversation drilling this deep into um, block speed and transactions per second. So thank you so much for having me on, man. No problem. This definitely helped because these are things like, you know, we're trying to learn as much as we can. We don't necessarily have the, you know, the tech background, even though we've been in the space for a while and then reading all these medium articles, listening to other spaces. It, it's really hard to put it together when you don't you don't get the information that you need kind of in a linear fashion to be able to build that, that knowledge. So I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, man. Yeah. This is a lot of fun. So thanks everyone for joining in. And if you have any questions, feel free to just DM me on Twitter as well. Cool. And I did draw that, that last prize. It was Benny J. You could, you could DM me and I'll get you your, uh, your prize and everybody else. Thanks so much for joining the next DeFi 101 will be next Thursday at this time instead of Wednesday. I'm trying to work around some of the other spaces that are always happening kind of at the same time as mine. And Kit, thanks for uh, thanks for joining again. Kit, Kit might have perfect attendance. I think we got to get her something one of these weeks as well. So take care, everybody. Have a great one. And thanks to our guest, Jay. Brian, really appreciate it. Thanks for checking out another episode of the Ether. That was episode six of DeFi 101, hosted by Cosmos Joe, discussing transaction speed with Say Network. Recorded on Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. And if you want to keep listening, head on over to TerraSpaces.org slash donate and show some support now. I'm in love with the Georgios. I'm in love with the Georgios. 
I got it for the low low I'm in love with the Jojos I'm in love with the Jojos I'm in love with the Jojos Jojos I got it for the low 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 I'm in love with the Jojos Hit my plug, that's my job, bros My mijos Stargaze mint for the low low Show me stars, I'll go loco Rowing in my little job boat, job boat. Bitches thinking I'm a Josh Mo no, no. Mean to smile when I draw low, draw low. Hear the alleys taking photos, photos I know nothing but the Jojo Bacon Jonas, yeah Bacon Jonas Bacon Jonas, yeah, Bacon Jonas. Whip it through the glass, Timmy. Woo, 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 woo. I'm making Jones fast, Timmy. Woo. I'm in love with the Jojo. I'm in love with the Jojo. I got it for the Lolo. I'm in love with the Jojo. I'm in love with the Jojo. I'm in love with the Jojo. I got it for the Lolo. I'm in love with the Jojo. 36, that's a deal, yo. Need a rack, miss my free throw. I'm in love, desert ego. Busting rugs, now we need yo. Free my homies, fuck the CEO. But the judge, fuck my PO. Puto, all this talk like you need yo. Minting Jones like a primo. Bacon Jonas, yeah, Bacon Jonas. Bacon Jonas, yeah, Bacon Jonas. Whip it through the glass, Timmy. Woo, 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 woo. I made it Joe's fast, Timmy. Woo. I'm in love with the Jojos. Jojos. I'm in love with the Jojos. Jojos. I got it for the Lolo. Lolo. I'm in love with the Jojos. Jojos. I'm in love with the Jojos. Jojos. I'm in love with the Jojo. Jojo. I got it for the Lolo. Lolo. I'm in love with the Jojo. 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 Amigos. Channel Spaces.